past five years, the business world has seen the birth of a new breed of company. The exponential organization has revolutionized how a company can accelerate its growth by using technology and transformational leadership. Yuri Van Geest is an international keynote speaker on exponential emerging technologies, digital transformation, and technology trends. During his IMI masterclass, Yuri explained why some organizations are able to grow exponentially and the fundamentally new ways corporations are organized to deal with disruption, exponential technologies, and accelerated change through transformational leadership. Today, I talked with Yuri on the phone about the impacts these technologies are having right now and what companies, both big and small, can actively prepare for this new economy. Let's start with the subject of your masterclass in IMI. Can you explain the concept of exponential organizations? Yeah, sure. So uh, exponential organizations is a new kind of organization, which is an answer to uh, exponential technologies in the environment. Mm. So we have to move away from our linear organization, which is focusing on scalable efficiency, to an uh, exponential organization, which focuses on uh, scalable learning and unlearning. And, and why has this concept come to the fore so much in the last few years? We've always had new technologies and, and disruptive com companies uh, coming onto the market. Yeah, well, the, the change is basically that we have uh, around 100 uh, different exponential technologies that are double in capacity every uh, 18 months, mm. sometimes faster, sometimes slower. That means every 18 months the cost drop by half um, for most of these technologies. So that's a new phenomenon we see becoming more mainstream, let's say, in the last 10 years, and this will intensify the next 10 years. But these are pretty much like 20 to 30 years old, but at first you don't notice it. Yeah, it's very small and uh, insignificant, but because it because of its exponential nature, not linear, it might because cause a lot of black swan events in the next uh, ten years. And can so, you for example, uh, biotech and nanotech and neurotech, uh, AI, robotics, drones, three D and four D printing, cellular energy, uh, quantum computing, blockchain, VR, AR, all these technologies have subsets. Of technologies as well, mm. but they are all uh, mostly exponential in nature. And before we get into the impacts of these changes, uh, you mentioned a couple of things there, like biotech, cellular tech sensors, drones, etc. But I'd like to particularly drill down into the quantum computing. Mm -hmm. You talked about quantum computing being the hardware layer of the future. What, mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? Well, we we will still have uh, our classic computers, mm. your current PCs, laptops, smartphones, and of course, the classic traditional uh, supercomputers, they're still valuable because they are general purpose. But mm. uh, besides, we will be complemented, not substituted, but complemented by quantum computers, which are really fast computers, faster than the fastest uh, supercomputers in some cases already today. Mm. Um, so we will, we, will, we will be able to uh, ask and answer the hard questions, uh, which require a lot of data, which we cannot compute today with our fast supercomputers, the current one, the classic ones. I was just about to ask you what impacts quantum computing is having right now, because it, it does seem rather abstract to a lot of people. And when do you think it will become just another part of you know the average executive's working day? Well, today there are already quite a few applications. Uh, for example, 
in China, they have uh, quantum artificial intelligence or quantum algorithms, so software based on quantum com computers, mm. uh, useful optimization problems, in this case, uh, quantum chemistry and quantum nan nanomaterials, so new materials. So they simulate and they test uh, in a virtual environment 50 billion new materials, for example. But you can do the same for precision medicine, or you can use the quantum computers today for maintenance and repair, like is being used at uh, Airbus in Europe, yeah. right, today. So you can you use quantum uh, computers already today for supply chain optimization, right? So there are many applications or use cases already today, but it will become more mainstream for, let's say, CEOs or C-suites and boards, mm. uh, uh, let's say, and governments, Increasingly, increasingly, I would say in the next now three to five years. That's pretty soon. Yeah, pretty and soon. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned a lot about sort of data there. Um, one of my one of my things has always been, what happens if if we build these quantum computers with bad data? And I suppose my ultimate question is, can these quantum computers and maybe AI test for bad data? In other words. Does it know if humans are giving it the wrong information? <laughs> that's a that's an interesting question. I think it's garbage in, garbage out, uh, yeah. like any technology. So we are responsible to make sure that the data that gets fed in to the quantum computer is is accurate, right? With the right metadata and mm. consistency of the data, so we that we can merge it or integrate it effectively. It's the same with AI, right? Over it might be quantum AI or classic AI or a classic computer or a quantum computer, they are not able to um, look for errors in our own data. Maybe, yeah, maybe if the, it if it can combine, let's say, the human biases, yeah, you know, they are around thirty to forty, and f do an analysis on top of the data being fed into the system, could make sense. But I think it's very far off, not not recent, not uh, current. Yeah. One thing that really stood out for me when you talked about AI since we jumped onto that was the error rate dropping below that of humans in the last number of years. That seemed to come across to me as, as a major, major leap. Yeah, well, it has to be very specific, right? So yeah. uh, AI, well, classic AI today is valuable in most cases for closed uh, systems. So very targeted use cases, routine based, a little bit creative, a little bit intuitive but it's only applicable and very effective and efficient in particular use cases. So for example, it's better than human beings on average in terms of uh, object record recognition, uh, video analysis in some cases, emotional tracking and analysis, analysis. Also speech recognition, sometimes translation, sometimes inter interpretation of data, but in a very con closed system, mm. contained system. We as human beings are much better still today in open-ended games or the, let's say the reality yeah which is an open-ended game right not, not a closed game so in that case uh, in those cases humans are still quite more uh, yeah, reliable and more effective today but it might change long term but today that's still the case and it might yeah. take a long time to go there with ai or quantum ai one story actually that that really stood out uh in ai was was the insurance company lemonade could you just yeah. tell the listeners about them yeah, so Lemonade is a new startup, uh, let's say quite new, three years old, based in New York City, now for available in the US and soon also globally. It's a home insurance startup, 
So if you have calamity in your home, let's say a theft or a, a fire in your home, you open up the, the Lemonade app on your smartphone. It's like a, a video conferencing uh, application. You can yeah, do your claim management while in video mode mm. and they can see if you are lying in six seconds <laughs> by facial coding the features of your face if you are sweating blood pressure color of your skin in your face soon also the intonation of your voice yeah. and they combine all these data points to see if you are lying not 100 percent accurate but pretty accurate let's say 97 to 8 to 99 percent so and after you fill in your claim using video conferencing or facetime basically mm. they can pay you out in three to four minutes after your claim using your wow. smartphone. So it's pretty uh, uh, phenomenal. And the cost of this startup is like 20 to 50x lower the cost relative to a classic incumbent insurance companies in the same vertical uh, or product category. category, yeah. category. So that's pretty, pretty phenomenal, right? So how do you compete as an incumbent with those new agile startups? Yeah, it, actually, it just strikes me as we're talking now, it'd be a useful tool for the police to use during interviews, because surely that error rate would be lower than a policeman just making gut instinct. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's uh, <laughs> legal. <laughs> Let's not make that recommendation but, now. But, 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 yeah, but I, I guess uh, the world is uh, moving to the, towards this possibility, right? So you have a lot of ethical issues to discuss. But we did it already, right, in the last 70 years or 60 years with the lie detector in a, in a classic, uh, mm. in, a, in, a, in a, the more traditional sense, what in some cases in the US, for example. But yeah, it's, it's, it's become, it becomes more effective over time because we have yeah. more data, better algorithms, blah, 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 more sources uh, to detect lies. So and they will be integrated. So it's pretty, uh, yeah, phenomenal or interesting development. It's very exciting. And, and to sort of to sum up, we've only spent a couple of minutes talking about these technologies. You went into much more depth in your masterclass. But just to sum up, this is really having an impact because tech is getting cheaper, quicker, better, and more impactful. So more people can use it, more people can use it to make exponential impacts, whereas before they, they really wouldn't be able to do that from a small base. Would that be a reasonable summary? Yeah, so because yeah, we have more technologies, they are becoming cheaper and demonetized. Uh, we can we can combine them, recombine them, right? So we can technological convergence, which allows allows for much new uh, yeah, product innovations, business models, organizational models. So all the key systems in our yeah, reality become reinvented, reinvented by these technologies slowly over time at first, and then quickly. Yeah, you, you had a great way of looking at the sort of peripheral vision of, of leaders that leaders are so focused on the day to day, they just don't notice these things sneaking up on either side of them. So what's the effect of all this on existing organizations? Is the typical organizational structure set up to cope with this new environment? It's going to be uh, difficult, right? We only know few uh, successful corporates which have transitioned uh, globally in the last, let's say, five years after we launched the book. Probably around uh, 30 to 40 examples. Maybe there are more examples we don't know about, but uh, mm. these are the key key examples we know. So, for example, KBC is a good example in Belgium. Uh, the leading bank is quite innovative mm. and also effective in digital transformation. 
of course, the Google, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft as key examples of revitalization. Mm. In the US, in China, there are many examples. The biggest, the most famous one is Hire. They keep on reinventing themselves, uh, even this week at the Hanover Messe. We, I saw the first example of using 5G, oh. and 3D, IoT, 3 and 5, 4D printing, and AI, and all combined to allow for mass customization of fridges for the first time ever <laughs> in wow. human history. So that's pretty disruptive. Yeah, and you mentioned there KBC and a couple of other big, big multinational companies. I'm always fascinated at the psychology within those companies and sort of whether people assume someone else somewhere is doing this. In your experience, is this actually the case or are big companies even more at risk maybe than those smaller agile uh, organizations? Yeah, it's a different answer for depending on the context. So, for example, mm. a big bigger players have a, some more leeway in terms of financial resources. Yeah. But the the smaller organizations have an edge in terms of being more agile, mm. more uh, anti-fragile. So, yeah, it depends on the the, the nature of the disruption, right? Mm. Sometimes the bigger organizations are in trouble. I think 90% of current leaders are not able to make this transition. Only 10% is able to, in my experience. I can explain that if you want in more detail later on. Yeah. And of the, let's let's say of the medium-sized and smaller organizations, uh, that they have the edge of being agile, but they lack the financial resources sometimes. Mm. So let's say around 50 to 80 percent won't be will be in trouble as well, right? That's that's, that's, that's a large data, number when when you when you. Yeah, when you because look only it. only a few number, only a few companies will survive. Right? There's, there's, there's so much let's say, replenishment of new startups every year. So that, that's that part. Yeah. In terms of the corporates, right, most corporates will still be uh, existing in the next uh, 10 to 20 years, but some will, only a few will go bankrupt. But the, the point is here, uh, let's say, I would say 70% will still exist, but they will lose market share right? Yeah. in the next 10 to 20 years. They become less relevant. Only 10 to 20% will be very successful in revitalizing themselves that's my prediction based on the last five years globally personal experience and the the, the last 10 percent will, will go will, will go bankrupt maybe more maybe 20 percent but not not but not 80 percent will go will, will go bankrupt i don't believe that mm. but they will become less important some of them and it will be will, will be will be substituted by new bigger players right startups that it will, it will be able to scale like uber or uh, netflix yeah. or airbnb and the follow-up startups emerging right today. So you do, you don't imagine the the FTSE uh, 100 of today all going like Kodak or Nokia? No, I I, I, I don't believe that. I, I think mm. the big the biggest uh, chunk will lose market share. Mm. They become less uh, relevant over time, and they will be uh, replaced by um, yeah successful startups right? that become big players themselves. Yeah, basically tech platforms or platform of platforms uh, after that. Yeah. Uh, many leaders listening to this now, as it's always a classic thing I have, the, the conundrum of not knowing what they should know. You know, in other words, not finding the solution that could work for them by just not seeing it. Is there any advice you can give for CEOs here? Is it simply a matter of reading every tech article in the world that they can get their hands on? No, it doesn't make sense because, as you said, most uh, leaders and C-suite executives are too busy with... Um, the troubles from yesterday, the troubles from today, yeah. of today, and some, uh, some have the, 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 the 
the space to think about the long-term future. But even in that scenario, right, which is very idealistic, uh, in my experience, besides some strategy meetings uh, twice a year uh, for a few days, I think most leaders would be uh, benefiting from yeah, thought leaders externally to mm. include them, to, to give the overview about technology, right? Organizations, agencies, maybe some people or experts as well mm. to sort of yeah, outsource that to a certain degree. Yeah. And they also have the strategy department, of course, which should track the key technologies right, with, with their radar. Um, so it's a mixture of inside, internal and external. They don't have and to do it themselves. I, I, don't, I don't believe that it makes sense. They don't have the time to do that, right? Perfect. So, so let's we we started to talk about what to do about it. So let let's talk about what to do it. What can organisations do? Are there structural solutions? And let's talk first about the company with relatively unlimited resources. You know, those those billion dollar businesses. We have a lot of multinationals in Ireland that that this would apply to. Okay, so now, first of all, what can companies do in general? Um, I would say the most important item is to revitalize leadership, right? Mm. Let them explore and visit China because it's number one in the world and Silicon Valley and the hotspot, innovation hotspots of the world, right? At least mm. once a year, maybe twice, to get a sense of the energy that's going on, the lights in those places, the level of innovation, and learn from it. Um, also, to adapt your leadership style, become more vulnerable, ask questions, not giving answers all the time, be open, vulnerable, purpose-driven and authentic, and build, building internal and external horizontal ecosystems mm. to get the innovation from the outside in and to share knowledge inside your organization. Um, to kill your own darlings, that's a mindset by leaders, right? You have to yeah, disrupt yourself or somebody else will. That's a particular mindset and attitude not easy to learn. Um, besides that, if you have unlimited resources like some tech platforms, they are doing this successfully in practice, right? Most of them, mm. uh, Alibaba, Tencent, of course, Baidu in some cases, Haya and Xiaomi in, in China, but also, as I said before, the GAFAs, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft, they are able to disrupt themselves on the edges. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, many times, like five times or, or 10 times in some cases. Mm to create small startups on the edge, totally independent from the core organization, even a separate physical location, and yeah. they can make their own decisions in terms of staff functions or core competencies or yeah, the, the knowledge that they would like to uh, build up. And leave it alone, they leave it alone, they can do it in stealth for a few years, uh, one year to five years or 10 years in stealth mode, and then they are able to scale it that rapidly, right? They, they use the the characteristics, characteristics of exponential organizations without any legacy or inertia mm. or some costs. So they are able to, because they have unlimited resources, also a better vision of how to uh, govern disruptive innovation effectively. So they are in a better play position relative to a classic corporation. And, and this is going to sound like a stupid question because it is a stupid question, but what is the philosophy behind those sort of organizations when you set them up? I'm I'm literally thinking of the CEO saying, okay, we're going to be disrupted. Let's try and set up, uh, you call them, I think, an XO light or an internal XO within yep. the company. Is the philosophy, okay, see what we're doing wrong? Uh, is it that we have an idea? You go off and experiment with that idea? Well, the, the, the most common approach among uh, let's say most or a large organization is to 
don't start with EXO light. EXO light is about revitalizing your core organization. That's that's mm-hmm. the hardest part. So we okay. normally suggest and see, don't rock the boat. Do only incremental and internal innovation in your core organization, and for the re- for the d- disruptive innovation and bold ideas, move to the edge. Uh, do different startups on the edge and try to make them successful. Well, these it's it's very schizophrenic man- management because the core is about scalable efficiency. Yeah. Even in the future, right? It's, it's your cash cow. And the money you make, you invest in the hedges of your own future, for your own future with those small startups. But 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 they require a totally opposite mindset and way of governance and managing mm. and uh, motivating them, right? It's it's an entrepreneurial mindset. It's very different from scalable efficiency. It's about scalable learning and unlearning, and it's about flexibility and speed and adaptiveness mm. and ownership and being anti-fragile. It's, it's so you have to be a little bit schizophrenic as a CEO or C-suite and board to manage these two opposing uh, organizations effectively over time. The biggest mis- mistake we see is that, that some uh, organizations are successful on the edge and they want to incorporate or in- integrate the, the yeah. external startup or internal startup into the core way too fast than uh, is required. So if you integrate this, let's say, in the first five years, yeah, you, it, it becomes a victim of uh, internal politics and the, the power struggle. So don't go there. I could imagine. And and also the, the the thing you mentioned, the obvious one is to, to find an XO organization and buy them or partner with them. Yeah, but there are many tools today, right, to uh, look for successful uh, emerging startups, uh, Crunchbase, mm. or there are many databases to uh, MetaMark to uh, to see where which startups have traction besides your social network. So it's, it's important to, that, that, again, to have a very effective radar function at the corporate level to look to look for uh, the key emerging startups and to use AI tools and other tools to uh, detect these startups early on mm. in time. And, and let's look at those regular companies um, with significantly fewer resources. What's the steps they can take? And I suppose actually they probably lie as much on the opportunity end of the scale as well. So what are the opportunities out there for them? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a very interesting uh, question. First of all, uh, work together with other smaller organizations, mm-hmm. right? So you lower the cost and the risks and you share resources and competencies to uh, create a new startup. It's complicated, but it's an option because you have lack, lack of resources. The second option is to, um, yeah, to start even more prudent or let's say you use more principles of lean startup to lower your mm-hmm. costs. Uh, to maximize learning, fail fast, fail often, or fail faster and fail more often or make more quickly to make sure that you preserve your financial resources when you are innovating on the edge with a startup. Yeah, I, th- I think these two uh, uh, yeah, recommendations are important relative to a large organization. Yeah. Um, you, you, you talked behind all this is the sort of unique mission of, of the company. Uh, you, you described as the massive transformative purpose. Yeah. Can you talk about how this acts as an organizer for the characteristics of an exponential yeah. organization? Yeah, so the purpose is the most important uh, attribute in our view. Uh, this has been shown over time after launching the book. Uh, for example, when we started writing the book uh, seven years ago, only 1% of all organizations globally was a purpose-driven organization, mm. installed base. And now it's around 7 to 8% installed base globally. Uh, so it's doubling every two years uh, as, a, as a heuristic. Uh, so that's very promising. So the purpose is the 
the the higher goal of your organization to help create a better world mm. in terms of sustainability, social cohesion, migration, poverty, water scarcity, food scarcity, energy scarcity, what have you. You have one particular challenge and you you want to achieve that by yourself or with other organizations. The benefits, the business benefits are manifold. First of all, it's a way to stabilize your organization. When you grow exponentially and you have a purpose, it's easier to preserve the culture and to uh, yeah, uh, align new employees with current mm -hmm. employees. The second benefit is that it lowers your transaction costs and search costs because you have the power of pool effect because you have a higher aspiration, aspirational goal. So it's, 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 it's cheaper to attract uh, and retain the best employees, partners and customers mm -hmm. towards your organization. Mm. Third, you have a more loyalty and uh, vital impact because you have a purpose, uh, a better aspirational goal. So more t more people talk about it for free, which is it, which is like an advertising medium, right, for for mm. your organization. So and and finally, your purpose is a, a long term compass for your organization. It's not a map. Mm. So it's a way to reinvent your strategy um, and five year operational plan into something much more effective. The purpose. It's a guiding yeah. star. Yeah. yeah, I really like that phrase. It's not a map, it's a compass. I think it says a lot. Um, let's move on to the characteristics that will be required of leaders in this new environment. You know, a prime task of a leader is to formulate and execute strategy. But how is that possible in a world moving so quickly? What's the changes they need to make? Uh, quite a few. Uh, what we see in practice is that uh, a five-year operational plan, in most cases, not all cases, uh, because if you're capital intensive in terms of uh, requirements, investments, then you need a five-year operational plan in some cases. Mm -hmm. But in most organizations, we see a shift away from a five-year operational plan, which is very linear, of course, mm -hmm. uh, towards a three-year operational plan or one-year operational plan to stabilize the organization. On top of that, you have the purpose the massive transform transformative purpose to have, have an additional stabilizing force and a long-term guide beyond the one-year operational plan. Mm. And on top of that, that, that's the third very important ingredient, um, the strategic uh, yeah, events are more organized at an ad hoc basis, mm. but it's self-organized, bottom-up, based on customer insights or experiments for inside the whole organization or outside the organization. So for example, a new technology pops up that's, that's very strategic. Let's say quantum computing mm. is now uh, available at room temperature, for example, which by the way is the case, but in China. <laughs> but let's say this is a new a news item, boom, you organize a strategic event with the C-suite and board for one day. What does, what does this mean for our organization? Right? It's very ad hoc. Uh, bottom-up self-organized based on particular triggers in the environment or inside the organization, particular insights from the bottom-up or in, inside the organization, right? Because employees act as act like uh, strategic sensors mm. increasingly. And uh, the, these insights are fed up to the top uh, faster than, let's say, in the past. So it becomes more emergence strategy and less top-down design. So that, and this is a, quite a shift from the past uh, because uh, yeah, the, the five-year operational plan and strategic yeah. processes were all uh, integrated into one um, process, but now it's separate. Right? The one-year operational plan is a different, the budgeting is a different process from the strategic planning process.
It it strikes me there just you were talking that it's it's very much about sort of self motivation towards that purpose. So yes, to, what, to a certain degree, yeah, to a certain yeah. degree. Um, what would a culture of fear within an organization do here? Um, it, it strikes me that it would really stop innovation at its heart. And and how should the organizations deal with this culture culturally? Um, I was struck by the Amazon example actually you gave during the masterclass. Yeah, so uh, Amazon, they have uh, some pretty interesting pioneering uh, measures and KPIs. So, for example, they uh, have the institutional yes as a key example. It's now probably around 10 years old. So that Amazon, they noticed 10 years ago that they didn't see a lot of interesting ideas pop up from the bottom up of the organization by new employees towards the top. So, and the reason is because if you are a new recruit at Amazon or at any big organization, uh, you say, hi, boss or manager, I have a great idea. It's easy to say no to this yeah. Yeah, new recruit and this new idea because there, there are no consequences, no skin in the game, no, no, yeah, no feedback loop. Mm. So they changed the institutional no into an institutional yes at Amazon as a result, as a change. That means if I have a new idea as a new recruit at Amazon, the, the manager, if he says no, he has to explain in a one-pager or two-pager why he says no. And this will be shared with his or her boss or manager as well and the organization. So it there's an incentive to take it more seriously because mm -hmm. if you say no too quickly, it might bet it might backfire uh, at the manager layer. Level. It's, it's so, like the fear of saying no to Gmail or something and then finding yeah. out later on. Yes, for example. So, and as a result, uh, the innovation level at Amazon has increased quite a lot in the last ten years because of the institutional yes uh, principle. So, you, you you get what you incentivize, right? You change the KPIs, you change the culture, slowly over time. So now we have more ideas popping up from the bottom up within Amazon to the top. And also, by the way, Jeff Bezos has always a channel, right? A direct channel for clients to content contact him directly when they have opportunities or, or uh, problems or frustrations. And the same applies to particular employees when they have a new idea. So there are many ways to close the communication gap That's right, really interesting. inside the organization. Yeah. So you talked about innovation there and, and you talked uh, a lot about diversity as well at the top in senior management teams. There's yeah. a lot of research in, uh, about innovation and diversity. What are the advantages of having a, a diverse senior leadership team in, in this regard? Yeah, so what we see, the more diverse your C-suite or board is, the more successful uh, your organization will be or is. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about an organizational performance improvement by 25 to 50% based on uh, scientific data points in the last five to 10 years relative to a more homogeneous yeah. Uh, C-suite or board, right? So that's pretty significant uh, difference. In incredible statistic, really. Yeah, and this is before the MeToo case studies in the last uh, a few years. So I can imagine today it's even yeah, more required or more paid attention to. Mm. Uh, so, and I think it's a great thing, right? So it's an important thing because in an exponential environment, it makes sense to have a more neurodiverse board and C-suite, right? Because you yeah. can, if you're the more homogeneous your culture, the people are, the more yeah, vulnerable you become to blind spots, right? which, which makes sense in terms of employees, in terms of business models, value shifts, in terms of target audiences, right? Uh, most importantly, maybe. 
but also in terms of yeah, sense making, what's going on in the environment. It's so complicated these days, so dynamic. Like you need yeah, more di- yeah. diversity to make sense of it all. And I think this will intensify in the next ten, a few decades, right? If, it, if you have a homogeneous board and C-suite, you become even more vulnerable long term. Mm. Okay, so a final question. Um, can you describe to us the ideal leader of an exponential organization? You know, yeah. give us something to aim for, I suppose. In my new book, I talk about this uh, extensively in uh, two, three chapters, but to give you a high-level overview, the the classic leaders were very direct, directive and top-down mm. and, and giving all the answers, and that's now pretty much gone uh, or irrelevant in most cases. Uh, we see the new leadership is more enabling, facilitating at first, mm. right? open, vulnerable, purpose-driven and authentic leadership, especially for millennials and Generation Z, they require that. Uh, they ask questions uh, everywhere, uh, upwards, downwards, horizontally, internally, externally. Very curious, but also very courageous, very bold, allowing for disruptive innovation. They are more entrepreneurial, uh, had more skin in the game. So they really yeah. understand how to make uh, edge startups successful on the edge, uh, inside or outside their organization. So they have more empathy towards uh, yeah, what, what is entrepreneurship. Uh, entrepreneurship uh, and also they uh, are humble more humble at first than let's say in the past and they are disciplined like in the past the same mm. and more but, but basically they are more holistic uh, more conscious more holistic and more inclusive i think inclusive leadership becomes uh, even more important over time and they are as i said uh, finally they are able to build quickly uh, open horizontal eco- ecosystems for innovation both inside the organization and outside. So they are, in, in a sense, they work less vertical and more work more horizontal to 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 be, to stay ahead of the game. And uh, they are also more intuitive. They use data everywhere, of course, but they are also way more uh, yeah, intuitive and spiritual than, let's say, the classic leaders, which are yeah. MBA-like, it's... trained and rational and left-brained. <laughs> yeah. And it's all great, but it becomes less um, important because the CEO is can use tools to analyze all the data points right? using AI or other, other means. Yeah, what you're describing there isn't impossible. It's very difficult to get to, but it's it's not. We're not describing uh, Superman or Superwoman. Yeah. So and, and, and as you probably know, right, there are already some, some companies and hedge funds globally that use AI as a as a board member or a C-suite member. Right. So. <laughs> I think Yuri, did, I could I could ask you about I could talk to you about ten hours about new technologies with the the examples that you gave. Uh, well, happy to help. Uh, maybe the next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do a follow up. Yuri, thanks let's so much it. for your time. Um, happy to help. I really appreciate it, and thank you so much for the masterclass. I know it went down extremely well. No problem. Thank you thank very you much. Very for much. Your time.